0: to uh, the book of Acts, where today we'll be studying Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Before I read uh, the word before I pray, let me just um, kind of prepare you for something, uh, not just with this sermon, but probably for the next uh, few sermons. When I was in seminary, uh, in my preaching lab courses where we'd have to preach and be graded on by a professor and by students, you're talking about nerve-wracking, like that was that was it. Um, one of the, uh, some of the feedback that I got from my first few sermons was that, uh, this is going to sound bad, but it wasn't, uh, that I used too much scripture in my uh, sermons. Not, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but what I had people doing was just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth from all these. Next thing you know, I preached the entire Bible in one sermon, and it just kind of got everything discombobulated. Um, well, I've repented of that. I don't do that. I try to, when I, when I preach, I try to stick to the text, maybe bring in one or two other texts for like to illustrate a point or if there's something that's kind of difficult to understand in our sermon text, maybe it'll add, shed some light of clarity on it or something like that. But that rule I'm going to have to break for the first two chapters of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is loaded with Old Testament fulfillment language. Loaded with it. If I, if I want to accurately and concisely communicate to you what the text is talking about, we're going to have to pinball back and forth off this text and Old Testament passages. Now, you might be looking down there like, well, I don't see thus saith, or thus it is written, or something like that. Well, there's something in the, in the New Testament called Old Testament allusions, where just through the language that is used, it's, it's made to bring your mind back to a certain Old Testament text. And so there is a lot of Old Testament in these first two chapters of the book of Acts. And so just kind of prepare yourself. Uh, I will read. You don't want to have to be turning back and forth, but I will be reading some of these texts. But just to kind of prepare yourself, there will be a, this is a sermon on Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, but there's also going to be some a lot of Isaiah, a lot of Psalms, and a lot of other Old Testament texts that we're going to be uh, having in our minds. So before I read God's holy and inerrant word, let us pray and ask that his blessing would be upon the reading and the preaching of it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, without you, without your gospel, without your word, we are all dead men walking. Father, we'd ask that you would make us alive together with Jesus Christ as the gospel is proclaimed in our ears. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, hear now the inerrant word of God. For John, the, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let me take you on a journey into the Old Testament, just right off the bat. Imagine, so about eight, this is about 1,800, 1,900 years, almost 2,000 years before Jesus is saying and doing these things. You're a son of Jacob, Joseph. You're a son of promise, your great grandfather Abraham was given a promise by God that he shall become a blessing to many nations, and that from him a great nation shall come forth. Well, in order to be a nation, you need well, a couple of things. You need uh, you need people, and you need you need land. Well, you're living in the land that God has promised to give to you as as as, as to, to, to so you can become a nation. But your brothers kidnap you, throw you in a hole, send you off into Egypt. But God was in that suffering and saves you from it. And doesn't just save you from it, but but sets you over all of Egypt. And that from that, from that evilness, that evil, that wickedness that your brothers had done, God saves your brothers and saves your father so that his promises might be realized. And that's fine and good. The Joseph... His brothers and generations after, they had it pretty good in Egypt. But after a while, a few hundred years later, a Pharaoh comes into power who does not remember Joseph, does not remember the God of Joseph, and he oppresses the people of God. He oppresses the people of Israel, and the people cry out, Lord, save us. And he does. Yahweh comes. He gives them his servant Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt, brings them to Sinai. He gives them the laws that are going to govern their nationhood. He shows them how to love God and how to love their neighbor. But they're in the wilderness. There are great people. They got the numbers, but they still don't have the land. And so 40 years later, Moses is not able to enter into the land but his servant Joshua is. So Joshua with with the armies of Israel stands at the Jordan River and just as Moses had parted the Red Sea, Joshua parts the Jordan River and this army comes across and goes in and invades and conquers Canaan. As not just, a, not just to take back what was given to them by, by, by God, but to dispense the justice of God upon the wicked, wicked, wicked Canaanites who are, who are doing evil things or sacrificing children, worshiping pagan gods, and just wipes them out. And then the people of Israel become the nation of Israel. Now fast forward about 1,400 years when Jesus is ministering with his disciples. How does his ministry start? Well, first of all, the context of it, Israel, the Israelites are still living in Israel. They're still living in the land of Canaan, but they're under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So they're in the land, but it feels a lot like they're living in Egypt versus living in the land flowing with milk and honey. And they're sitting there and they're waiting. When is God going to do something about this? When is God going to send us a Joshua to rid our land of this foreign invader? Well, then out of the wilderness comes a wild man named John who is there baptizing in the Jordan River, preaching, the re- preaching repentance of sins and, and, and belief in God. And, and as he's doing these things, A man comes to him to be baptized, a man named Jesus. Jesus is the Aramaic name for the Hebrew Joshua a man named Joshua shows up at the Jordan River. He goes into the water, a voice comes out of heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. He comes out of it and proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe the good news. What are you thinking is about to happen? You've been waiting for a Joshua. You've been waiting for somebody to come and remove this foreign influence from you to do what Joshua had did to the Canaanites, to the Romans. Now, here's this guy, Joshua, Yahweh saves, coming out of the wilderness and declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. You're thinking, this is it. No more Romans. We're taken care of. The disciples thought this when Jesus would proclaim the kingdom of God. But that's not what Jesus was proclaiming. It was a different kingdom. Jesus was very clear about this. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. There's a far greater enemy than the Romans. There's a far greater enemy than the Canaanites. And that is the enemy that dwells within you. It's your own depravity. It's your own sin. And that is what I'm here to deal with. I'm here to deal with your sin. But the disciples, they don't understand that. And you see this misunderstanding still with the disciples there in verse 6 when they ask, Will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? That's what they're concerned about. They're concerned about the nation of Israel. Well, Jesus, you're by, you're resurrected from the dead, and now we're sitting there talking to you, though you were dead just a few days ago. Surely now, now the nation of Israel will be restored. And then what is Jesus' response? To paraphrase it, it's something like this. That's none of your business, and then he flies away. The word in the Greek there, when it says they're looking into heaven... The idea there is that they, they're befuddled. They are stupefied. They're, they're, they're just looking dumb into the sky. What in the world just happened? He's supposed to be our Joshua. He's supposed to be our king, and then he ups and leaves. Why did he leave? And maybe you've asked yourself that same question. Why did Jesus have to leave? Wouldn't it be easier? if he was just in the Jesus version of the White House and he could just speak to us and we could just just kind of know what was on his mind and we didn't have to sit here and thumb through this 2,000-year-old book and try to figure it out, wouldn't it just be so much easier? Apparently not. What does John 16, verse 7 say? It is for your benefit that I go away. But it can be hard for us to see that benefit. This text, though, is going to give us the benefits of Christ going away. So I want us to see three different benefits here and what Jesus does. First of all, I want us to see the benefit of his sending. And then I want us to see the benefit of his ascending. And then I want us to see the benefit of his descending. Sending, ascending, and descending. Let's first of all look at his sending. You'll see this in the first five verses of this text. We're not going to labor this one too long because we already saw this last week. Jesus is going to send the disciples, but not quite yet. Go to Jerusalem and just sit there. Wait. Why? Because I'm giving you a commission. I'm giving you something to do that you don't actually have the power to do. You don't have the power to go out there and to spread the good news, to proclaim the good news of what I have done. So sit there and wait. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit up on you. And then that will empower your ministry. And we just want to empower your speaking. It will also empower people's hearing. I want to empower your words of salvation. And I will empower their believing unto salvation. But not right now. Just a few days from now, I'll do it. But right now, go to Jerusalem and wait. And so that's what they do. And that's what we talked about last week, the waiting for the Holy Spirit, the, the, the pouring out of all the promises of the new covenant as spoken of in Jeremiah 31 and Joel 2. But to this morning, I want us to focus on what Jesus is not doing, what he is not sending. He is not sending the disciples, the apostles. He's not sending me and you to a, any particular people group. What does he say in verse 8? I'm sending you to Jerusalem and Judea. This is like home base for the disciples. They're all Jewish. This is the home of the Jews. This is their, their capital. This is their, their comfort zone. These are the people that they, they grew up with. The people that they, 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 they like or at least mostly like. They can get along with. They have something in common. A, a, a nationality. But Jesus is going to do more than it. He's like I'm not, it's not the kingdom of Israel that I'm talking about. It's not the kingdom of Jerusalem. It's not the kingdom of Judea. It's also going to be the kingdom of Samaria. Now, who are the Samaritans? These are the neighbors directly to the west of Israel. They were despised by the Israelites because they were a mix, not both, both ethnic, ethnically, they were a mixture of both the Jews and really Assyrians. And the Assyrians were awful but they were also a mix religiously. So they they wanted to be Jewish. They wanted to worship like the Jews, but they also really liked their Assyrian paganism. And so they end up taking the the, the religion and the worship of Judaism and they corrupt it with their own ideas. They worship on their own mountain. They actually say, we're better at being Jews than the Jews are. And the Jews are like, what are you talking about? You're not even one of us. And so they despise them. Well, guess who the kingdom of God is going to include? Israel and Samaria. But it doesn't even stop there. He goes on to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The wilderness. That place where you don't even know what's going on out there. That, to, the, to the barbarians. That is who I am sending you to. The kingdom of God does not have borders. It is going to grow, it is going to expand, and it is going to fill the entirety of the earth. And when Jesus is giving this commission, when he's giving this command to go and proclaim the gospel and spread the kingdom of God through the ends of the earth, it's a fulfillment of an Old Testament text. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 35 verses 14 through 17, I'll read it for you. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill at the and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild, a joy of of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until. So that's, that's going to happen. Everything is desolate. everything's wilderness until the spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then. Justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful fields and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. That's not a promise to Jerusalem and Judea. That's a promise to Samaria. That's a promise to Rome. That's a promise to Tennessee. That's a promise to Tipton County. That is a promise to the whole world. The kingdom of God is not limited by a national social political border. It's going to grow and it is going to expand. But notice there that it's not just the expansion that Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about there's a newness to it. Everything's dead and lifeless, but that's going to change. I'm going to pour my spirit out upon all flesh. And then what will happen? All things will be made new. What is dead will be made alive. What is fruitless will be made fruitful. And when we engage in this commission, when we engage in evangelism, when we engage in sharing the gospel with other people, we're not just getting another jewel in our crown. We're not just checking a box or anything like that. We are engaging with the Lord Jesus Christ in his making all things new. When we think of judgment, we often just think of destruction, but there's another side to that coin. Recreation. Here in Isaiah, even though he's using the temporal language of wilderness and fruit and things like that, Jesus is going even further to the crown jewel of creation, humanity. Salvation through faith in the gospel is a new creation event. All things are being made new. Jews, Samaritans, Romans, Spanish, English, Asian, Hispanic. They will all become one in Christ and they will dwell in peace and security, all of them. I like, I love this church building. It's beautiful. It's pretty to look at. I also really like it because it's going to make this illustration very easy. Uh, Martin Lloyd Jones describes the Church of Christ, the Bride of Christ, as a as a church building, but it's not a church building that's made with brick. Bricks are uniform. They look the same. They're the same size. There's there's nothing unique. I'm comparing one brick to another brick. When Christ builds his church, he builds a stone building. Go outside and look. No two stones look the same. Some are big, some are small, some are dark, some are light. They all look different, but it's not chaos that you see in the building. They're all held together in one cohesive whole. And so it is with the people of God. There's not any one particular people group that the gospel goes to. It's not to one particular people group that the kingdom of God grows and expands and, and consumes. It is all. People from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Because of all these different stones, have been joined together. And though they are unique, they are all together the one church and the one bride, joined together under the head, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Because of this, we need to take seriously the work of evangelism. Understanding that we're not just doing it just to get like a little credit for something. No, we are doing it because we are joining with what Christ has done. That we are are working with him he is working in us to make all things new. We always think of like heaven and all of these everything, everything's going to be okay and everything's going to be perfect. And that's true. But we're not just waiting for it, it's happening right now. You're a proof that it has happened. Our work is important. But we also need to take seriously the message that we are bringing to the world. We are not here to affect societal change which does end up happening wherever the gospel goes. Like, it just, just, it's just kind of a, like, uh, a fringe benefit. It turns out when you go around and you spread the gospel to people and people begin to love Jesus and wanting to follow his law, which is, which is uh, summarize and love your neighbor as yourself, when everybody loves their neighbor as yourself, guess what happens to society? It gets better. People start getting along. People all of a sudden don't, like, they don't, they don't want to harm their neighbor because they're trying to love them as they love themselves. And, and that is good. And that's the function of the law. If the obedience to the law, everybody gets along well. But here's the thing. As good as the law is, it is not the gospel. The law itself cannot affect the obedience that it demands. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, but it isn't. It isn't. I can tell you what to do until I am blue in the face, but it will not give you the ability to do it. What does that? What takes the dead things and makes them alive? It is the good news of Jesus Christ. That he lived your obedience, that he died under your wrath, and that he was resurrected for your justification. That is what enlivens obedience. And that is why when we share the gospel with people, we need to understand the difference between the law and the gospel. Yes, the law is necessary to convict of sins, but if you swing the hammer of the law, always accompany with it the feather of the gospel. Let me give you a, little, a helpful little poem written by John, uh, by John Bunyan um, that has really helped me understand this distinction between the law and gospel. He says, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and it gives me wings. Don't just give the demands of the law. It's not going to make anybody able. It is the gospel that brings life. An obedience that pleases God comes from a heart of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving can only come from a soul that has been made anew by mercy. So please, as we share with our neighbors and family members, remember, if you would bring the hammer of the law, then always accompany with it the feather of the gospel. The law left alone will only destroy. But the gospel, with the gospel, it can make all things new. So this is the message and work that Christ has left with us to do. Go and proclaim the good news of what Christ Jesus has done. And this is the benefit of this. Through the power of the Spirit, made manifest through the proclamation of the gospel, Christ will make all things new. You're engaging in the work of heaven. But why did Christ have to leave us? Why did Christ have to go? Why couldn't he have... Just, just stayed. Wouldn't, wouldn't the commission be easier if he was here with us today? What's the benefit of Christ ascending? This is our second point. We are Presbyterian. We don't really abide by liturgical calendar like people like in the, in the Methodists or the. Uh, Episcopal or Catholic traditions or stuff like that. Uh, we we celebrate the big ones that we can't really get away from, like Christmas. You know, can't really get away from that one. Can't really get away from Easter or Good Friday or stuff like that. But there's a lot of other kind of feast days within the Christian liturgical calendar, and and one of them is actually the this uh, the, this uh, Ascension Sunday, the Feast of the Ascension. Uh, you, you know where you know when that is? Today. It's actually today. That's providential. I'm not trying to infuse a liturgical calendar. God and His providence said, you will preach the Ascension on Ascension Sunday. but, it's, but that shows you something of how important the Ascension of Christ has been to Christians for 2,000 years. I mean, it's a, it's a feast day. And it's not just something that we see on a liturgical calendar. We just said we just confessed the Apostles Creed together and right there, toward the end of it, we talked about the ascension of Christ into heaven. sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's so important. It's not just in a liturgical calendar somewhere. It's in a creed that Christians have been confessing for nearly 2,000 years. Why is it there? What is the importance of this? Let me give you, let me give you three reasons. I'm going to combine the two into one. Uh, last two into one. But three reasons in total. First, it gives you an assurance of faith. It tells you that what you believe about Jesus, it isn't just some wishful thinking. That it was attested to by witnesses. So this is something we talked about um, evangelism a little bit already. Something to kind of keep under your hat when speaking with people who don't believe, who are, um, are questioning you know, Christianity and things like that. Uh, something that I've found to be very helpful is to, to bring to their mind the public nature of the ministry of Christ. So you think of Muhammad. He claimed that miraculously, through the mediation of an angel, he received the Quran, and that that is the word of God. Who saw that angel give him that? Nobody. He was in a cave by himself. Nobody saw it. It It's private. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, an angel came to him too and gave him a new testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who saw that? We just got to take his word for it. Muhammad, we just got to take his word for it. Well, whose word do we have to take for it that did Jesus, that did anything that, that we believe that he did? Well, it's not just one person. It's not two persons. It's not 11 persons or 12 persons. Thousands of people. Because what he did, he did not do in hiding. He did before people's faces. What what exactly did he do? Well, when he was baptized and the voice comes out of heaven and says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. It wasn't just him and John. I I don't know how many people it was, but possibly hundreds of people were there to see Jesus baptized and to hear the voice come out of heaven. It was public when he healed demoniacs and blind people and deaf people. He didn't, he didn't take them out somewhere where nobody saw them. He, he was doing it in the street. He was doing it in the marketplace. He was doing it in the synagogues. He was doing it at temple, at feasts, and on Sabbaths. Thousands of people are watching him do these things. When he feeds the multitudes, not once but twice, if you combine the two and count men, women, and children, this is over 20,000 people. Saw him feed these enormous crowds with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. That's public. His resurrection, 500 people witnessed the resurrection. And now here at the Ascension, once again, it's public you have the 11 disciples, but I, I think, I feel pretty certain, there's a there's more than just the 11 disciples. For instance, if you just read down just a few verses uh, past Acts chapter 1 versus, verse, verse 11, you'll see as they're sitting in this upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit, Luke gives you a number. There's 120 of them in this room, in this house, awaiting this to happen. I think the actual number is probably closer to that 120 number. You're not just believing the testimony of just one or two or None, but the witness of multitudes. I used to be an avid golfer. Now I'm an every now and then golfer. And it's one of my greatest fears that one of these days I'm going to hit a hole in one. But I'm going to be playing by myself. Because <laughs> no one's going to believe me. You don't just have to believe John. You don't have to just believe Matthew or Luke or Paul. You can believe a host of witnesses. It is well attested to. There are many People that you'll find on TV around the time of Easter, people looking very hard for the body of Christ, and there is a body of Christ, but they're all looking in the wrong place. He's not on the ground. He's not in the cave. He's not hiding in the shrub somewhere. He's at the right hand of God. That should give you a great deal of assurance that this is not wishful thinking. This is not us taking a leap of faith. This is us believing the testimony and witness of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who witnessed these things. But it's not just an assurance of faith this should give us. It should also give us joy and boldness in our own ministry, in our own witness that that we give to people. It gives us boldness and it gives us joy. You see... The ascension isn't just important because of the event itself. It's also important because why Christ was ascending. What was he going to do? Two things. He was going to reign as the king of kings and the lord of lords to take his seat upon the throne of heaven and that he might exercise his duty as our great high priest. Psalm 110. It's one of the most quoted passages in the entire Bible. It's a prophecy concerning the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And it's very important. In fact, as we'll see in just a little bit, the book of Hebrews really stakes almost our entire salvation on Psalm 110. It's a psalm written by David. And it's written written by David, but it's not about David. It's about David's son. And not Solomon, his son, Jesus Christ. What does Psalm 110 say? First of all, in verse 1, David calls his son his Lord or his master. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool. By the way, that first Lord there in your Bibles is probably all caps. Whenever you see all caps, Lord In your Bible, that is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Adonai, my master. So here David is saying, my son is not just my son. He is my Lord. He is my master. I submit to my own son, which is not something you did in the Old Testament. But David does. His son is going to rule at the right hand of God, and God is going to make his enemies a footstool. Then David goes on to describe his son's rule. He says, And Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. That's a very important part. We don't have time to really pick that apart. But here, Jesus' reign is not going to be him ascending to the heaven and then just wiping his enemies off the face of the earth. He's going to reign in the presence of both enemy and friend denier and worshiper, lover and hater. That is his reign. But then he goes on, and this is the really important part here. Here in verse 4. This is what sets Jesus Christ, the son of David, so far above his father David. Verse 4. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, kings were not priests, and priests were not kings. But the son of David, he will be both king and priest. He will sit at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, both ruling and interceding on behalf of God's people. See, the kings in the Old Testament and the priests were not able to serve forever as either king or priest. But Christ will have unending rule and an unending priesthood, because he will not be prevented by death, for he has conquered death. And they were also prevented in the Old Testament from, from by sin. Just think of Solomon, the immediate son of David. I used to give my Old Testament students a, a, a paper to write, now I would have them argue for whether or not Solomon was actually saved at the time of his death. It's a, it's a hard question. He falls into paganism. He enslaves not some foreign country, but Israel itself. Sin. David, David, the father, has an affair, and to cover up, murder somebody. They didn't exercise their kingly office well. They were sinners. Priests the same way. Before the priest would enter into the Holy Holies, he didn't just make a sacrifice for the people. He had to make a sacrifice for himself because he was unrighteous. This is why the book of Hebrews hinges nearly all of our salvation on this little psalm. Listen to how Hebrews 10 puts it. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How did Christ be king? by becoming a priest, by becoming a sacrifice. But Hebrews doesn't stop there. He brings in all the promises of the new covenant by quoting Jeremiah 31. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. None. He hinges that all on Psalm 110. And what is Psalm 110 about? Jesus ascending into heaven and what he is doing there. He is reigning. He is commanding. He is protecting. And he is also living forever in the Holy of Holies, making intercession for you, not every now and then, but continually, forever, perpetually, and perfectly by his own blood. That's why the ascension is important. That's why it's been celebrated for 2,000 years. He wasn't leaving earth just to sit on his hands. His work is not done. In a very rural way, we talk about Acts being the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit... It's also the acts of Christ and his work in heaven being manifested here on earth. Yet in our minds, we doubt our forgiveness. We doubt whether or not Jesus' sacrifice is actually good enough. We're tired of believing. We're tired of having faith. We We want to actually see. Jesus, you, you say you're reigning, but the church is infiltrated by false teachers and heretics. We're, 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 we're being assaulted from all ends by the world. Where's your rule? Like, you tell me I'm forgiven. You tell me you're interceding, but I don't see it. I don't see your reign. I don't see any of these things. Where is it? This is the benefit of our last point the descending of Christ. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Notice here that the men are urging them to have joy in what is happening. But I want to bring something to your attention here that might go a mess in order to bring it to your attention i got i have to combine the ascension account in luke and the the ascension account in acts let me read to you the ascension account in luke real quick and he led them out as far as bethany and lifting up his hands he blessed them he gave them a benediction while he blessed them he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing god so two things there in luke he lifts his hands, he gives them a benediction. And acts, he is taking up into the cloud. That is exactly what the high priest would do on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, before he entered into the Holy of Holies to apply the blood to the mercy seat of Yahweh. He would stand, he would make a sacrifice, blood would be on the altar, smoke would be billowing from it, and he would stand in front of it, raise his hands, and give the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And after he would say these things, he would place his hands down, and through the cloud, he would enter into the presence of God. That's what Jesus was going to do. But notice one more thing. What is it that the men say to the disciples? Why are you sitting around looking befuddled and dumb? He's going to return in the same way. He went up into a cloud and he will return in a cloud. Clouds in the Old Testament were always symbolic of the presence of God. What that means is when Jesus returns, he's not coming alone. And I'm not talking about just the dead who will be resurrected. He is coming with the presence of God. We were talking about like that difference between heaven and earth. When he returns, there will be no difference between the heavens and the earth. They will be how that looks, I have no clue. But there will be no difference. The two will be one when he returns and makes all things new. We will worship forever in the very cloud, the very presence of God forever and ever and ever. Why will he be there to wipe every tear from every eye? Because he will be everywhere. We think of heaven as being like, like, well, I'll die and then I'll go and be with Jesus and I'll be there forever. No, you won't. No, you won't. Heaven's not your home. You'll just be passing through. Christ will return. Your soul will be reunited to your body. You will be caught up with Christ into the cloud and you will descend with him. Right now you believe because of what you've heard. You believe because that word came in the power of the Holy Spirit. But do not just gaze blankly into the sky. There's work to do, and there is a sure hope to be had. For the things that you do have eternal consequences. And one of these days, I don't know when, but Christ will return, and we will dwell in his presence forever and ever and ever. And no one will say to their neighbor, know the Lord, but we will all know him, and we will all see him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, your word is truth. We are sinners, prone to wonder from it. So we beg you, write it upon our heart. May the name of Christ be forever in our hearts and our minds, so that we might be good servants of his kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.